Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it is always helpful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together. So I'd invite you to grab one of the Bibles that should be in a chair back nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 883. Our 18-month study through the Luke, uh, the Gospel according to Luke continues towards its end as we, including this sermon today, have only six weeks left. In the study of Luke's gospel, we come to the end of chapter 22 today as we look at verse 54 through 71. And we come to what is the day in Jesus' life when all his enemies thought he was at his end. Because by the end of our text today, we have finally reached Good Friday of Passion Week. But as, of course, we'll see in the coming weeks, it wasn't his end that he met there at Calvary. And so what I want to do to get us going is just uh, read the text and then pray uh, briefly that God would bless our study of it. And then we will begin. So let us hear now as God is speaking to us through his word. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, You will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, And they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, a son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us bow in prayer together. Father, we come once again to the Garden of Gethsemane as our Lord leaves it. To march ever onward to the cross at Calvary, where atonement was made, where his body was broken, his blood was shed. As we come to increased agony, scenes of torture and humiliation that our Lord did not deserve, 
Help us to renew our faith in Him as we remember this morning that He took the penalty in our place, that He stood as our substitute, that He was beaten and bruised, that we might know life. So we pray that you would help us to see Him in the fullness of His glory this morning, that the Spirit would empower our ears and minds and hearts to listen with attentiveness, the Spirit would take my mouth to preach with faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the more famous preachers in the English-speaking world during the early 20th century was a man named Campbell Morgan, who served at the famous Westminster Chapel in London. And it was in 1888 that Campbell Morgan applied to be ordained to the gospel ministry in the Wesleyan Church. So he began by taking his written doctrinal exams, and he passed those exams with relative ease. It was quite simple for him. And then the day came for his trial sermon. He walked into an auditorium that was built to seat 1,000 different people, and what was confronting him that morning were three examiners who were going to decide his ministerial fate, along with 75 other people who just showed up for the day's festivities. And Campbell Morgan preached his sermon, and it came and went with out much effect whatsoever, and according to the customs of the time, he was made to wait about two weeks to hear how his trial sermon went. Fourteen days go past, and he finally sees a posting related to the ministers who have applied to ordination. And it was that day that Campbell Morgan sent a one-word wire to his father saying, rejected. And he wrote later on in his diary that evening, very dark, everything seems. As some of you know, the difficulty and sting that often accompanies rejection. Maybe it's the rejection of a loved one. Maybe it's the rejection of a spouse. Maybe it's the rejection of a child. Maybe it's the rejection of an employer or students. Maybe for you recently it's been the rejection of a college that you wanted to attend. Whatever it is, so often in the Christian life, just life on this side of heaven is full of rejection when everything seems very dark indeed. And we go once again to the darkness of Gethsemane this morning in Luke chapter 22. We lie once again under the shadow of Calvary, and we find this theme presented to us in our text, the rejection of Jesus Christ. Because what we'll see happen in three different movements is Christ rejected, first by Peter, secondly by officers, and thirdly by priests. It's the Son rejected so that you and I might be redeemed. And if you know the emotional force, you know the the weight and the brutality that faces Jesus in that night and early morning hours in our text. You might wonder, maybe if you have sympathies with the Savior, you might wonder, why was it this way? Why did the king have to suffer in this way? But if you know your Bible well, you know how couldn't it be any other way than this as The prophet Isaiah says in one of the servant songs in Isaiah 50 that the Lord's servant was going to go into utter darkness. Isaiah 53 says he's going to be despised and rejected by men. The rejection of Jesus Christ is good news for you and me because it's going to mean redemption for all those that come to him. So again, where we find ourselves, we're still on... Uh, Passion Week in Luke's Gospel narrative this week that stretches from the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ to the resurrection of Jesus Christ one week later. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' words and ways on Thursday night, 
Thursday of Passion Week as he's instituted the Lord's Supper a couple weeks ago. He said that true humility is Christian greatness, that he has to fulfill scripture and be numbered with the transgressors. And then we went with him into dark Gethsemane last week as he prayed this legendary prayer. Father, take this cup from me. But if it's not your will, keep it and I will take it. And what we saw there in Gethsemane was the son's submission to the father's will for your salvation, for my salvation. And what's striking to us in our text this morning is not just the son's continued submission to the father's will, but his silence among those who reject him. Maybe if you've read through through this passage before, you've wondered, why is it exactly that the Savior was so silent when he was beaten, bloodied, and bruised, denied, and despised? Why is it that he seems not to lift up his voice at all of the sham trial that ensues? Even he perplexes his accusers as they wonder, why won't you answer us? Maybe that's the question to have in the back of your mind as we walk through this text. Why is it that Jesus is so silent? I think we'll find an answer by the end, but let us now begin to see Jesus rejected by Peter in verse 54. We're told they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. Now, if you don't know anything about Peter, you simply need to know that he's the disciple that always is the most energetic one. And part of his energy is that he's full of arrogance and often assurance. If you glance back up just a few hours before what he said to Jesus in verse 33 of Luke 22, after Jesus has said that Satan, the devil, has demanded to have Peter. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. But kids, look down at verse 54 again. Is Peter with Jesus? He's following him at a distance. And surely there's a reason to meditate on this truth, even in the hours that remain this day, that distance in discipleship is often a recipe for denial To remain apart from close communion with Jesus Christ is to put yourself in a place where it's easy to disobey, where it's easy to walk away. But close proximity to Christ, being with Him in fullness of faith, enables you to stand firm in the midst of hardship, persecution, and suffering. So if you want to set the scene, we're told in this chapter, and of course you combine all the other gospel accounts, that Jesus in this moment is at the high priest named Caiaphas' house. He is probably within sight and sound of where Peter is. It's a cold night, we're told, and so they build this charcoal fire there in Caiaphas' courtyard, the other Gospels say. They're crowding around this fire, wondering what's going to happen to this quite famous man named Jesus Christ. They can certainly see into where the trial is happening. Maybe they can even hear what is going on. And as they are warming themselves by the fire, you'll notice that a servant girl, the text says, which means she's no older than 13 or 14, is staring intently at Peter. And students, you might know the kind of unnerving nature of someone just staring at you. Peter's there by the fire, maybe making conversation with those that are next to him, maybe just trying to be quiet, stay warm. And this teenage girl is just staring at him. Maybe he becomes a little bit unnerved, as many of us do as someone stares at us. And look what she says in verse 50. 5 and 56, 
Peter sat, sits down among them, and then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. It's almost as though in this moment uh, we observe Peter playing this spiritual game of baseball. Uh, he's like one of those clean-up sluggers of old with pride and assurance and arrogance. He lifts his bat, points it over the fence, and says, I'm getting ready to swing a grand slam, hit a home run of faithfulness. In the course of this night, around this fire, he's going to quickly and predictably strike out. It's strike one. He cannot withstand the gaze of this little girl. Look at verse 58. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Strike two. And then Luke tells us uniquely that an hour goes by. You can wonder, what's Peter doing in this hour? You might want to say, why, Peter? Don't you remember? Jesus, just a couple hours before, said it was going to be three times that you denied me. And you've already done it twice, so be ready for another temptation to deny him. Or maybe there's so much sorrow, agony over what he's seen happen to Jesus, hearing happen to Jesus, that he's just kind of slinking away into the shadows around that fire, just wanting to stay warm, but wanting to be away from conversation. But if you read this account, especially with the other Gospels, it seems as though he's actually quite talkative, as Peter is probably prone to be as he's around this fire. For another person comes along and says something, look at verse 59, after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. Now, there's two things you need to know about this third man who accuses Peter of belonging to Jesus' inner ring of disciples that we do know from the other Gospels. The first of which is the man who speaks this third time is the relative of the high priest servant named Malchus. Now, if you know, and were with us last week, who Malchus is, he's the one that just a few hours before in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter had rose up in defense of his Savior, unsheathed his sword, and chopped off Malchus's ear. It's like a cousin comes along and says, hey, I know who this guy is. I just was there a couple of hours ago. But Matthew and Mark's uh, gospel make it somewhat more distinct in his accusation. They say he sounds like a Galilean. He's got a Galilean accent is what they mean. Just as you can often come across a person from Boston or New York, and you know that's where they're from based on their accent. So too it was at this time in the Jewish nation. If you came from Galilee, you had the accent of a northerner. And they say, Peter, he's talking like a northerner. This man before us is a Galilean, so surely he belongs with the other Galilean present here, Jesus Christ on trial. And Mark's gospel makes it quite forceful in how Peter rebukes this man. He calls down, Mark's gospel tells us, oaths and curses in his final denial. Luke just makes it quite simple, doesn't he? Look at what he says in verse 60. Man, I do not know what you are talking about. But if you add Mark into it, it would have sounded something more like, I swear on my life I have no idea who that man is. Or may my body be cut in two if I be proven untrue that I don't know who this man is. Do you see how quickly... Peter has moved from simple rejection of Jesus Christ to oath-bound denials of his king. And it's almost as though a soundtrack is playing in that moment. Because what you see at the end of verse 60, immediately while Peter was still speaking, the rooster 
crowed. Uh, roosters in the ancient world, they often punctuated the hours of the night, much like, you know, a bell might on your watch or an old grandfather clock. And this was likely the crowing of the rooster during the night's third watch, which puts us somewhere around 3 a.m. on Good Friday morning. It was signaling dawn was on the way in the ancient world. And just as Jesus said, Peter has denied him three times as the rooster crows. But there's not just a, a sounding forth of the Savior in this moment, in the rooster's crowing. We also see a sight of him, don't we? Do you see what happens in verse 61? At this moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. My kids, your parents might have a look. They don't have to say anything to you. Just furrow their brow. They look at you in a particular way. That They don't have to say anything. But you're suddenly stopped in your tracks. You know, you can't do it anymore. Can't say it anymore. To change course of direction. Don't you want to know what the look of Jesus was like in this moment to Peter? It probably is quite unlike what many of us might do. In that, surely it's out of character for Jesus Christ's look to be little more than, I told you so. So what might it have looked like? I do think it was a reassuring rebuke of Peter. Momentary apostasy of this great disciple who had become a leader in the church, falling in his faith, unwilling to even obey the commands of Jesus Christ in Gethsemane. Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I think that there was a tinge of rebuke in his look. But it is a reassuring rebuke. Because look back up at what Jesus said there in the upper room in verse 32. He's telling Peter, Simon, Satan wants you. And he basically prophesies that he's going to get him for a short period of time. But look at verse 32. And when you have turned again, strengthen my brothers. Jesus knows that Peter's rejection is not going to be the end, some game of his life towards Jesus Christ. He's going to turn and repent of his sin. We know even from John's gospel that Jesus, after he resur resurrects from the dead, he lays a charcoal fire, John 21 tells us, just like that night there on Good Friday. Three times he asked Peter, what? Do you love me? Systematically, intentionally, lovingly, reassuringly, undoing all of Peter's denials. So I wonder if Jesus might be looking at you this morning through his word and by his spirit. Might he be staring at you? And what are you going to do with that look today? We know what Peter did, don't we? Look at verse 62. He went out and wept bitterly. Earlier this week, I was reading the memoirs of a 19th century pastor named Alexander Moody Stewart. And he was recalling one day he was walking down the sidewalk with a well-known theologian and professor named Rabbi Duncan. And he was praising to Rabbi Duncan this preacher that they had just heard. Incredible eloquence and mighty rhetoric. And Rabbi Duncan, in his inimitable way, he responded by saying, much learning and many talents, yes, but too unbroken yet. And there is a sense in which, isn't it true, that Christ must break his servants before they can truly serve him 
with faithfulness. This is Peter's breaking moment. He goes out and weeps bitterly because he realizes what he has just done. And more so than you may realize, you could do a study of this with a church member or a Christian friend and and see the place of tears in the life of a Christian. More so than I think we may remember, weeping over sin is an ordinary reality for Christians. David, the man after God's own heart, can say in Psalm 6, verse 6, I have flooded my bed with tears. We know from Psalm 56, verse 8, that God keeps all the tears of his people stored up in a bottle prophesying of the Savior who's going to be crucified. Zechariah says in Zechariah 12, verse 10, they will look upon Him whom they crucified from their sin nailed, and they will mourn with bitterness. When was the last time you wept over your rejection of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you went out and wept bitterly because of your denial of the King? Jesus is rejected by Peter, Now we want to see, secondly, Jesus rejected by officers. Look at verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. So we know these men are likely either soldiers or servants of the high priest. And what you find really in the remainder of this text is a string of stunning ironies as these enemies relate to Jesus Christ. First is the irony of prophecy. Look at what they say in verse 64. They blindfolded Jesus and kept asking him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? But we know he doesn't say anything. He has just proven, though, hasn't he, that he is indeed the true prophet? Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Prophesy who hit you. There's irony in the prophecy. But there's also irony in the blasphemy. Look at verse 65. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus is getting ready to be accused in the sham trial that ensues of blasphemy. Yet who's the one that's actually being blasphemed? It's the Lord Jesus Christ as he submits in silence to blows. We know from other texts, to spitting to agony and brutality at the hands of these men who are now rejoicing that they finally have this supposed Messiah in their very fingers. Do to him whatever we want. He's rejected by Peter. He's rejected by priests. Some of you may remember from, maybe it's a high school literature class or a recent college literature class, uh, the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Maybe you've seen the movie, this Pulitzer Prize winning story of a man named Atticus Finch. He's a defense attorney who defends a black man named Tom Robinson who's falsely accused of a crime. And what ensues in the story is nothing less than a sham trial that exposes the the prejudicial system of that time in America with prejudiced judges, attorneys, officers, and even jurors. So by the end of the trial, Atticus Finch arises to kind of give his closing argument before the jury breaks to deliberate. And he begins to plead with them, basically on common sense and dignity. He says, restore this man to his home. And he closes his argument by saying, in God's name, I beg you, do your duty. In the face of all of this false evidence, do your duty and let him go. But if you know to kill a mockingbird, they convict him. And he's subsequently shot and killed as he's trying to escape from prison. It's a sham trial that echoes what we get ready to see now as Jesus is rejected by priests. Look at verse 66. When the day came, 
Jewish trials were only legal if they happened in daytime. They had to wait till day came. And the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes. And they led Jesus away to their council. That word council is the one from which we get this word Sanhedrin. If you've heard that word before, it's the Jewish Supreme Court. So picture Jesus in this moment in the high priest Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas is there presiding over this council, this Sanhedrin. With him are 70 other Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, ordinary lay elders. They're seated in this semicircle around Jesus Christ, ready to pronounce judgment. And what we know is they begin to bring these witnesses, false witnesses whose testimony refute each other. And they need two witnesses, of course, to adjudicate this crime, to convict him of something that he's supposedly done wrong, and they can't get that evidence. And so they begin to wonder out loud, Jesus, why don't you answer yourself? And in Luke's gospel, what we now see is something that's been true all the way throughout his accounting of Jesus' life, that what ensues is a tussle over titles. Who are you, Jesus? First question, are you the Messiah? Look at what they say in verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. So Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, meaning anointed one. Uh, we've seen over and over in Luke's gospel how Israel was in this kind of heightened expectancy for the Messiah to arrive, but their understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to be this kind of political deliverer who was going to bring about redemption from the Roman Empire, this evil empire that stood against Israel and restore them to prominence in a golden age on earth. So look at what Jesus says in response. If I tell you, you will not believe me. If I ask you, you will not answer. He knows, doesn't he? By this point, for essentially three years, all his interactions with the religious leaders have done is prove that they don't want to listen to common sense, obvious truth about his identity. And not just that, they won't answer any questions that he throws their way. Because you remember how many times he would answer their question with a question and response, and they had nothing to say. Basically, what do I gain by telling you that I'm the Messiah? Because, of course, his conception of the Messiah's mission is altogether different than theirs. The first question is, are you the Messiah? The second question is, are you the Son of God? And that comes because Jesus ups the ante in his conversation with them in verse 69. Look at what he says. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There's two Old Testament texts in the background here in one verse. Daniel 7, the Son of Man who receives all authority, power, dominion. But also what we sang earlier in Psalm 110, the Lord's exalted one who sits at his right hand. And to say this is actually much more significant than to say, yes, I am the Messiah. Because if he said he was the Messiah, then they would have their ability to accuse him to Rome. Hey, we've got this political insurrectionist on our hands. But in their mind, what Jesus has just done is saying, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. He actually has blasphemed now. So I think what you want to understand with the Sanhedrin, of course they were surely leaning in because they were so engaged in what was going on in this trial. But it's as though, like sometimes you'll get in trials today, a witness who will say something, and then maybe it's the defense lawyers or prosecutors will look at each other and say, did he really just say that? This is close the case. So what do they say? Notice verse 70. Are you the son of God then? Because if you say that, this has become altogether easy. 
but he doesn't really answer their question, does he? You see what he says in verse 70 as it ends? You say that I am. More like maybe what we might say today. You said it, I didn't. It's an ancient Hebrew way of saying yes, but. Yes, but what you mean by that is something quite different than what I mean by that. But nevertheless, they've got what they wanted, right? You see as the text closes in verse 71, what further testimony they say do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Rejected by Peter, rejected by officers, rejected by priests. Soon to see, aren't we? His rejection is going to mean our redemption. So we do live in this culture that often gets caught up with trials. You'll know this because inevitably it seems like every decade comes along and we're, we're told that this trial is the trial of the century. Uh, you can even remember in recent decades in our culture, or frankly even in the world, you had in 1990s, you had the trial of O.J. Simpson, then you had the impeachment trial of President Bill Clinton in the early decade of the 21st century, you had these trials of these notorious war criminals, Slobodan Milosevic and Saddam Hussein, captivating the world's attention in what was going on. And of course, maybe they can lay claim to the trial of the century, but they can never lay claim to the trial of the ages. This trial that we look at today and we'll, we'll really look at also next week. This trial of Jesus Christ, the perfect, innocent Son of God made to suffer the death of crucifixion as a common rebel, robber, and insurrectionist. And the ironies continue, actually, in this text. And so what I want to do as we begin to close is just point out two more. Two more that even call out to us and how we're to respond to the rejection of Jesus Christ there in the early morning hours of Good Friday. First of which is look to the mercy of Jesus Christ, your substitute. Look to the mercy of Jesus Christ, your substitute. It's quite striking, isn't it, that Jesus in this moment is in the high priest's house. Before the Sanhedrin is what? We know from the rest of Scripture. The true high priest. Interestingly enough, the high priest was made to stay awake the night before the Day of Atonement. If he fell asleep, one of his young servants or young priests were supposed to come in and shake him awake to make sure that he was prepared for the next day's offering of atonement. Do you notice that Jesus stayed awake all night? before he offered full and final atonement. But it wasn't the loving arms of his disciples. Jesus, wake up. Beatings, blows, bruises, blasphemies kept him awake. And what again is so striking in all the gospel accounts is Jesus takes all of it. Doesn't even speak a word. So why then, as we asked at the beginning, is he so silent? Why then doesn't he say anything why then doesn't he prophesy who hit him? Because surely he knew. Well, of course, there's a fulfillment of Scripture at play from Isaiah 53 that he was like a sheep led to the slaughter and did not open his mouth. But something more pointed is necessary for you to see if you're to understand Jesus is your merciful substitute. What he is doing in the midst of his life and ministry is, of course, undoing everything the first Adam did. When Adam plunged the world into sin darkness, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, do you remember what his two simple sins were? Rebellion against God's law and blasphemy. Satan says, you'll become like God. 
If you know the trials of Jesus, what are the two central things he's accused of? Rebellion and blasphemy. He doesn't speak up because he knows that is the charge soon to be laid on him. By whom? His Father. He doesn't speak up because it's the Father's will to crush him. The blasphemy and rebellion that our lives have done will fall on him like a scapegoat placed on its head to be rejected so that you might be redeemed. So like Peter gets a chance to look on Jesus. There's of course truth in the scriptures and by the Spirit, isn't it, that we too are called to look on the merciful King, Jesus Christ. Look at the mercy of Jesus, our substitute, as he is soon in just a few hours' time to hang there at the cross of Calvary. Secondly, Listen to the testimony of Jesus, your judge. Here's the irony. Jesus is made to submit to a trial before judges, namely the judge named Caiaphas. But there are two trials going on, aren't there? Because what Jesus is saying in verse 69 with these declarations from Daniel 9 and Psalm chapter 110, these declarations that actually the real judge is in your midst. And there's a time coming when he will sit in judgment upon you. So the question then for us is, which judge are you going to listen to? Uh, which trial, which court will you side with? One accuses him of blasphemy. Another accuses him, rightly, of equality with God. One says he must die in order that he might be gotten rid of. The other says he must die in order that sinners might live. Many of you know the name Larry King, this famous talk show host of years gone by. He was once asked after he retired, hey, if you could have interviewed anyone in history, who would you want to interview? He said, Jesus Christ, plainly, quick. He just rattled it off. And the reporter was somewhat taken aback by such an earnest and confident statement. Well, what would you want to ask him, the reporter said. I want to ask him if he was really born of a virgin, because that would change everything for me. In other words, I want more testimony. Do you see the irony in how our text ends? Look at what they say. What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. What further testimony do you need? You've heard it from his own lips. He is Messiah. Son of man, the Son of God, rejected in order that you might be redeemed. Do you need more? What more testimony do you need? So then the response, isn't it? To look to the mercy of Christ who is our substitute. Listen to the testimony of Christ who is our judge. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we so often fail to look and listen. Maybe we have never looked or truly listened to who Jesus is. So, Father, we do pray that the beatings, the mockings, the torture that he endured, like a silent sheep led to the slaughter would indeed bring us to Christ Jesus for the first time, or maybe yet again this morning, 
as we do indeed want to look upon him and live. Give us comfort knowing that he restored Peter who denied him three times. His mercy is more. It belongs even to us today if we come to him in faith. Build us up, we pray, in Christ, that we might ever and only live in the shadow of Calvary, that we might indeed look upon him and so run our race with endurance, what your spirit has set before us. We do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.